Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin on this Earth Day. We are a spiritual and spirited community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're very glad you're here. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. So the way we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is by turning to the people to our right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Let us say together the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Our call to worship comes from the work of Denise Levertov. But we have only begun to love the earth. We have only begun to imagine the fullness of life. How could we tire of hope? So much is in bud. How can desire fail? We have only begun to imagine justice and mercy. Only begun to envision how it might be to live as siblings with beast and flower, not as oppressors. Surely our river cannot already be hastening into the sea of non-being. Surely it cannot drag in the silt all that is innocent. Not yet. Not yet there is too much broken that must be mended. Too much hurt that we have done to each other that cannot yet be forgiven. We have only begun to know the power that is in us if we would join our solitudes in the communion of struggle. So much is unfolding that must complete its gesture. So much is in bud. You know, it's good to have um, North Star to steer by when you're making big decisions. And this mission that we wrote on the wall has served as our North Star for the last seven years. And we've made some good big decisions based on this mission. The thing is that the people who wrote the mission um, put into the process that in seven years we were going to refresh everything. So the board in listening to the congregation has made new goals for the congregation and uh, the mission has changed somewhat. But for now, until the banner can be hung, which has the new mission on it, we will say this mission in homage to uh, something that has guided us and been beloved for a long time. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Please read responsively with me. Earth, teach me stillness as the grasses are stilled with light. Earth, teach me suffering as old stones suffer with memory. Earth, teach me caring as parents who secure their young. Earth, teach me courage as the tree which stands all alone. Earth, teach me limitation as the ant which crawls on the ground. Earth, teach me freedom as the eagle which soars in the sky. Earth, teach me resignation as the leaves which die in the fall. Earth, teach me regeneration as the seed which rises in the spring. Earth, teach me to forget myself as melted snow forgets its life. 
earth, teach me to remember kindness as dry fields weep with rain. Now is the time in our service when we join together in an attitude of prayer and meditation where we speak to God as we understand God or listen or where we listen to our inner wisdom or just to our breath as it goes in and out of our bodies. It is in this point of stillness that all the religions of the world say that we can find clarity, love, compassion. Let us enter into the wise silence together, understanding that in this congregation, the small noises of children and the sounds of life count as part of the silence.
Hoof and horn, hoof and horn, all that die shall be reborn. Corn and grain, corn and grain, all that falls shall rise again. If I were going to start a religion, just make one up, it would be built all around seeds. I want to start by telling you the story of Johnny Appleseed, an example of how history gets simplified and kind of um, prettified. And it gets painted over with the assumptions of whatever generation is telling the story. Let me give you an example. Okay. The Disney Johnny Appleseed shows a boy in western Pennsylvania who is working with apple trees, and the apples are beautiful and round and red, and he's picking them, and he's singing. Sing along with me if you know the song. Oh, the Lord's been good to me, and so I thank the Lord for giving me the things I need, the sun and the rain and the apple tree. The Lord's been good to me. We all saw the same Disney educational movie. (laughs) And, um... Bluebirds were twittering around, and he had a a guardian angel who appeared, uh, looking like a white settler, and and talking in ways that sounded like he was about to say, concern it, any minute. And he gave Johnny a cooking pot to wear on his head as a helmet, and he gave him his bag of seeds and said, go west, young man, and plant apple trees, because that's what you do, and that's what you're called to do and take the good book with you because Johnny um, his real name was John Chapman he was a Swedenborgian and I'll tell you about what that mm, offshoot of Christianity teaches Um, what you need to know is before that the people who were going west the settlers who were going west were being given 100 acres of land if they could make it a permanent homestead. And that meant plant 50 apple trees and 20 peach trees. Now, these were settlers from the East Coast, from Ireland, Scotland, England, Scandinavia, and Europe. So all these white settlers, which that... That qualifying um, description was never in the history book that I read. These white settlers were offered 100 acres by the companies that wanted the railroad to have towns uh, around the railroad. So you're building the railroad, you want towns, you give settlers this um, incentive to move west and plant orchards and um, live there. So... Um, Johnny Appleseed was born John Chapman in the 1700s, late 1700s, in Massachusetts. And he moved west gradually, um, almost to the frontier, which was Pittsburgh. (laughs) His beliefs were Swedenborgian, which means that um, 
they used the Bible as interpreted by a Swedish mystic and scientist named Emanuel Swedenborg, who had just died when Johnny Appleseed was born. And what they taught was that God is love and that you should live with love and gentleness and that you should be light on the earth and that you should um, preach the fresh word of God that is love and um, that you should treat things very gently. He didn't like stepping on bugs, for example. Um, And they didn't believe, and this is pertinent to our story, they did not believe in splicing or grafting. They didn't believe in grafting Mm, apple branches into apple trees. And the only way that you can get the kind of apple that we think of as round and delicious is by grafting a branch from an, uh, another apple tree that happens to have round sweet apples onto the apple starter tree. I'm sure you know the name of it. I don't. Um, I'll just call it starter tree. (laughs) Um, And you graft it in. But the Swedenborgians thought that hurt the plants, gave them pain and distress, so they didn't do it. So Johnny Appleseed planted apple trees from seed. Now, apple trees do this amazing DNA scramble when you plant them from seeds, and you don't know what's going to come up. You could plant one kind of apple, you have no idea what's going to come up, except you do know if you, if you grow it from seed without grafting, then you're going to get what they call spitters, which uh, Thoreau said was because they were named because after you took a bite of one, that's what you wanted to do, spit. <laughs> Sour enough to set a squirrel's teeth on edge and make a jay scream, he said. So Disney and I imagined this Johnny Appleseed that was eccentric enough to roam the West barefoot and plant trees that would produce lovely sweet apples that people could eat right off the tree. That betrays a cultural blind spot. You don't think about your cultural blind spots. You don't even know they're there. Have you ever come across one in you? There was a realtor in the town where I was before this one. Um who was riding around with the new rabbi and um, she said to the rabbi, sing me something. I know you're a cantor. Sing me something. And he did. And his voice was gorgeous. And she said, oh, my daughter's getting married in a few weeks. I would love it if you would come sing the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) She didn't know. So, I didn't know that if you plant an apple tree from a seed, you're going to get a spitter. Now, what are spitters good for? Cider, hard cider. Hard cider is what you make from spitter apples. This was the great American drink of the frontier. Uh, Coffee, tea, too expensive, too fancy, water, too full of bacteria. Cider is what everybody drank, men, women, and children. It was at the, every, the table at every meal. And they reckon, i um, saying that because of the time, they reckon that um, everybody drank an average of 10 ounces of cider a day. And I know the children weren't drinking that much, so that means the men and women were drinking more. Anyway, so apparently the frontier life was lived through kind of an alcoholic haze. <laughs> which explains a lot. (laughs) So 
so John Chapman, Johnny Appleseed, would just stay west of the settlers. And what he would do is he would clear land and plant 50 apple trees and 20 peach trees. And by the time the settlers got there, the orchards would be started and he would sell the orchards to the settlers and make a good living that way because who wouldn't want land with your orchard already started on it? So you had a permanent homestead right away and they were willing to pay John Chapman for that service. So he was very eccentric, but he was doing something that was necessary for the settlement of all this land by the railroad tracks. He did wear a cooking pot on his head, and he did go barefoot, and he did believe that you suffered in this life, and it made your next life better. He never married, but he did have two virgins in heaven that talked to him, and they had conversation He didn't believe in polygamy, so I don't know what he needed to for, but um, anyway, they they were his companions that he talked to while he was planting. So this land, the 100 acres of land that was given to all the settlers from Europe and Scandinavia and England, for the basis of family wealth, you know, if your family has 100 acres... Then you farm on that land, and you can sell that land later on. Your kids need to go to college or whatever, and it's just, it builds wealth or tends to build wealth in the communities of people who have the land. And so what was the situation for the non-white folks, Um, you might ask? Sherman promised the enslaved men, I'm going to say men and women, but I think it was probably just the men, um, promised them 40 acres and a mule, when they were free, if they would move west. And some uh, freed men got their land, and some free uh, black folks who had never been enslaved got land and bought farms and worked the farms. Um, and the, but they were playing the game at a much higher degree of difficulty than the white farmers because the banks would not loan money as easily to black farmers as white farmers. And so... Um, It was easier for your farm to go under. It was easier because you didn't have the bank loans there to help you um, navigate the ups and downs of farming. And after Reconstruction was over and Jim Crow came in, um, Congress in D.C. um, had the philosophy that wage labor was much more appropriate for people of color than land ownership. And so... um, And what happened here in Texas was that the Texas Rangers and civilian uh, vigilantes and local law enforcement killed many American farmers of Mexican descent and took their land and pushed them over the border. And so some Americans uh, ended up workers on farmland that they had previously owned. And that was policy, not accident. An epilogue to Johnny Appleseed's story is that when uh, Prohibition came in, in the 1920s, the uh, spitter trees that you could make cider from were outlawed. And you had to, in your agriculture, you had to grow 
uh, eating apples and not cider apples. And if the farmers didn't um, take care of the problem themselves, the FBI agents would come and cut the trees down. And I'm trying to picture them in their suits and white, you know. It's an odd. So the question, seeds have a lot to do with justice. And the questions are, um, so the Johnny Appleseed story tells us that history is complicated more than we know usually. Um, Seeds have to do with justice in that the questions are, who owns the land? Who grows the food? How is the food grown? Um, if you have land with water, you have power in the, in the world. You're strong in the world. And who owns the farms now that feed us? Well, they're mostly uh, enormous farms, thousands and thousands of acres, and they're mostly farmed very industrially uh, with great big machines. And um, they're owned by corporations rather than families. Um, after World War I, uh, Hoover made programs where he wanted America to feed the world, um, and farmers got a sense of themselves as heroic world feeders, and uh, scientists got a, a sense of mission on how to make seeds that would be better for the world and that would cure hunger. And so they began making seeds that were high-yield seeds. They would modify the seeds and for um, high yield. And then the companies who owned those seeds wanted um, to recoup their investment, of course, so they patented the seeds. And so if you were a farmer and you bought those modified seeds, you had to sign a contract that said you would not save those seeds and make a second-generation crop from them or a third-generation crop. And um, globally, this is a terrible problem um, because farmers, say, in India had been um, farming and saving seeds and the the crops had developed to be perfect for the... um, weather and the soil where they were being grown, but um, America wanted them to grow high-yield seeds so that they would produce more food. So the farmers um, had to sign these contracts that they would not use them more than uh, once. And the World Bank um, wouldn't loan money to farmers worldwide who wouldn't agree to buy their seeds from the approved companies. So you have all these um, farmers who are then kind of mm, under contract with um, big seed companies, which there aren't very many of them. Uh, Monsanto owns 25% of all the seeds with patents in the world. And that alarms some people because the the scientists at Monsanto are under pressure to keep developing seeds. And so one of the things that they do is they put, um, there's a bacteria in the soil called Bt bacteria. It's natural. It's naturally occurring. Um, and it's, it makes insects sick. And so they put the Bt into the corn kernels. And so when you grow the crop, the crop is naturally in, makes insects sick. And that's not bad for the real bad insects, but you also have... Um, monarch butterflies and ladybugs and whatever that are coming over the crops and they um, it, it, 
take the pollen and make food and take this BT pollen and they don't grow well and they sicken and then they die and the monarch populations are um, being decimated and they don't know if it's really BT that's in the corn. There's controversy about that because uh, Monsanto's studies show that that's not uh, what's happening. And the scientists are uh, modifying the crops so that they will be what they call Roundup ready. So farmers can spray the fields with Roundup and the Roundup will kill the weeds but not the crops. And so the only problem is they didn't think about wind and bees. And so what happens is that the pollen of the Roundup ready uh, crops drifts and mixes with the weeds all around. And so the weeds also become Roundup ready. And, um, and then if you're an organic farmer next to an industrial agriculture plot of land and they spray their fields with Roundup and there's wind and the Roundup goes onto your organic crops, you can't sell them as organic because they got wind drifted. And you have to start again in the three-year process it takes to make an organic farm. Three years of not using any insecticides or herbicides. And it's the organic farmer's responsibility to make a barrier, not the farmers who are industrial. And everybody's trying to do their best. I really don't think there's anybody wicked in there going, <laughs> let's ruin the world. Although they did, um, <laughs> they did start making seeds because people were using them all still for third and fourth generations of crops. They started making seeds that would go sterile after two generations. And concerns were raised because of wind and bees that um, then perhaps the sterile pollen would mix with uh, everything else on the planet and everything would stop producing and that would be bad. Bad. <laughs> so, if I were to make up a religion, it would be built around seeds. If you look at an apple seed, you hold it in your hand, it's so small, but you have absolutely no idea how many apples will come from that seed. Hundreds. And then when those seeds of those plants are planted, thousands, and then millions, all that life and potential is held within that seed that you hold in your hand. That's a fabulous definition of infinity and grace and amazing love and uh, efficient spreading of DNA. And so we should regard a seed with awe. And the seeds are like a human soul in that they go through cycles, which we do too, where the seed is buried in the cold, cold ground, and then it splits open which I imagine causes anxiety to the seed. And I know that when I feel that I'm in a cycle of my life where I'm buried in the cold, cold ground, and when I'm splitting open, it's not a comfortable cycle, part of the cycle to be in, and some of you are in that cycle. And then the new shoot comes up and begins to struggle toward the sun, moving around obstacles and finally breaking through, and we know what that feels like in the human soul. 
as well. When you break through and suddenly you could feel the sun and you go, oh, okay, this is how I'm supposed to live. And then you're making an infrastructure by which you can bring nutrients to yourself. And then you bloom, which I also imagine is anxiety-provoking for a flower. Um, But I'll talk more about that at Flower Communion. And then after you bloom, that same force of life and growth makes your petals fall and the seeds develop and then your seeds fall to the ground and the cycle starts over again. As above, so below. As without, so within. Hoof and horn, hoof and horn, all that dies shall be reborn. Corn and grain, corn and grain, all that falls shall rise again. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Remember the way of the wind and breathe and blow. Remember the way of the fire and sparkle and glitter and glow. Remember the way of the water and ebb and flow. Remember the way of the earth and grow. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.